Hey guys, welcome to Legendary, the podcast where we don't know anything and mispronounce everything. I'm your host, Adam Bloor, and I'm joined by... Isadora Martindai, who pronounces more things wrong than Adam Bloor does. <laughs> Although today, actually, I think I might be okay. Yeah, it's very European what you're talking about, so you're probably going to be fine. Only a few French words to get totally wrong. <laughs> so today, we thought we'd take a little adventure into real life land, I think. Yeah, I mean, usually you guys know what we do. We take a myth or a legend and we look about how much truth there is, where the legend may come from, and who the legend was made for to explain what, basically. Yeah, and today we sort of picked, well, they're two very different people. You sort of picked a a hero of the people. (laughs) So I went looking for a feminist icon. You picked Joan of Arc. I picked Joan of Arc. I have to say, it's made me realize I could start an entire podcast on women that I admire. Weirdly, Joan of Arc would be fairly near the bottom of the list. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do think that Marie Curie will be very high on my list if we do this again. Yeah, I definitely know who that is. Is that sarcastic? Yes. Really? Yes. She yeah. won the. F- she was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize. Okay. She was the first person to win two Nobel Prizes. Okay. She literally made radioactive chemicals a thing. Okay, cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, now I know who she is. Not even a frack. You don't even, you haven't even scratched who she is. I don't even have a glint. I don't even nope. have any idea. Wow. Okay. Huge, huge. Anyway, I'm thinking that there's about a hundred different women I could do. And you chose someone who falls much more into the mystery category. Yeah, definitely a real person. Well, I mean, <laughs> there's no question that Joan of Arc was a real person. This is my, my... At least we know the name of my person. My person, I chose D.B. Cooper, uh, much more modern mystery. The mystery is not anything surrounding him, really. He was obviously a real person. The question is, what happened to him after he did what All he right, did? so you're up first today because I went first last week. And that's what we're going to get into now. On November 24th, 1971, a nondescript middle-aged man carrying a black attache case bought a ticket from the Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International at Portland International Airport to land in Seattle. Once he boarded the aircraft... Hang on, real quick. Portland to Seattle. That's not very far. It's like a 30-minute flight. Okay. It's Yeah, it's not far at all. Okay. Obviously, right. he... We'll get into why yeah, okay. he probably chose a, a short... Well, on, honestly, the ticket may have just been the cheapest way to go yeah, about doing this plan. Yeah, no, okay. I had read somewhere that the plane ticket... In 1971, from Seattle to Portland, would have cost like fifteen dollars. Sweet, it's not that anymore. And so it's so funny they they mention him using cash mm-hmm. to buy the ticket, and it's like, yeah, of course he would. <laughs> yeah, like he obviously used cash to keep his identity a secret, but no one's using a credit card or a personal check to buy a fifteen dollar plane ticket. Well, what was fifteen? Okay, we're $50. massively digressing, but what would fifteen dollars <laughs> be worth now? Um. So the, because I would put like a Starbucks coffee on a credit card, and that's that's because you're lazy. Are you telling me you'd pay cash for a Starbucks <laughs> coffee? Uh, no, of course not. I don't carry cash. Okay. Nineteen seventy-one. I don't know how to. Oh, how much was fifteen dollars worth in nineteen seventy-one? Okay. Oh, like eighty dollars, eighty-one. Yeah. Okay. So you no. Okay. So he put it on cash to hide his identity. Moving on. Anyway, once aboard the plane. Uh, this is a detail that always kind of confuses me. They mentioned that he orders a bourbon and soda, which doesn't 
connect to anything else. I think it's sometimes when people explore mysteries like this, they just sort of pick any detail that they possibly can. Yeah, so if your great-great-grandfather, great-grandfather particularly likes bourbon and soda... He might be D.B. Cooper. <laughs> that's what I'm taking away from this. Do you want to clear that up? Adam just knocked into a cup of coffee and... An entire and cup of coffee. Do we inspire? have It was a very Isadora movie. Yeah, it really was. You are... My husband is listening in today because he's interested in both these stories. This bit where Adam runs off to go get kitchen roll. Okay. None of that fiasco is over with. Okay, so he ordered a Coke and soda. Yep, bourbon and soda. It was actually 7-Up. Oh, bourbon and... Ooh. Like a 7 and 7, basically. They're really good. They're not, like, great, but they're pretty okay. good. moving on. Okay, so... I thought you meant, like, bourbon and soda water. No. No, because we call it soda in the States, in the Midwest specifically. Okay, like, bourbon and soda... Okay. Yeah, it's not soda water. <laughs> so as so the flight takes off... And shortly after, Cooper hands a note to Florence Schaefer, the flight attendant. The note said something to the effect of, I have a bomb. Okay. To the effect of that? what? So they don't know what the note said exactly because he took the note back from the flight attendant. Oh. Probably, again, to so they couldn't trace any handwriting samples back okay. to him. Uh, <laughs> funnily enough, she doesn't look at the note the first time he gives it to her. She assumes that he's just a lonely businessman. And that he put his phone number on it, so she puts it in her purse. And so he leans over and says, hey, you better look at that note. Uh, because I have a bomb in my suitcase. Uh, so after that, um, she sits down next to him and he opens up his briefcase, revealing some wires and some red sticks. Okay. What you would assume a bomb would look like in a movie filmed in the 1970s. Okay. And so he, at this point, he lists out the demands. He's got a bomb on the plane. I'm going to blow this plane up if you don't give me what I want. Right. He says he wants $200,000 in negotiable American currency, four parachutes, and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. Okay. So Schaffner goes to the pilots, gives them his instructions, and informs the pilots that they're going to have to call ahead to Seattle Airport and get the stuff and ready. Get the stuff ready. So they have to do this very quickly as well, because, again, this flight was only half an hour. So the pilot contacts air traffic control, who then call the authorities. The other passengers are told that there is a minor technical difficulty on the plane and that they will be delayed, which I think is, like, a very interesting move to keep them calm, obviously, because otherwise he may have just blown the plane up. Well, I don't, it's assumed that the bomb definitely wasn't even real. I yeah, I'd always heard that it was definitely not real. But I don't think they they never found the briefcase. So they never okay. Um, the amount of evidence that they recovered is very very small. But anyway, so the aircraft circles the airport for two hours, which allows the police and the FBI sufficient time to assemble Cooper's parachutes and ransom money. Mm -hmm. Reference to that, and this is important. To Cooper's escape, he says something along the lines of looks like Tacoma down there to the other flight attendant, indicating that he is a local. Okay. At least he's familiar with the area. All right. So they get his cash. They assemble the ransom money, uh, 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, most with, the serial number, most with serial numbers beginning with the letter L. This is important because obviously they're going to get the serial numbers for all of the money. Should it turn up yeah. in a bank, casino, whatever, whatever, they'll be able to track where the money came from. 
the plan landed in Seattle at 5.39 p.m. And all the passengers are released. So he doesn't keep any hostages. Not even the crew? No, only the pilot and the co-pilot. Okay. Because he didn't know how to fly a plane, purportedly. Once the passengers are off of the flight, off of the plane, the plane is, again, refueled. Because his next demand, now that he has the money, is to fly, for the pilot to fly the plane toward Mexico City. Okay. Um, at minimum airspeed without stalling the aircraft. I don't understand why that was. He also demanded that the landing gear remain deployed. Mm. And that the wing flaps be lowered 15. I had to literally just pull this information because I didn't. I don't understand any of it. The wing flaps be lowered 15 degrees and the cabin remain unpressurized. Now, can you think of any reason why? So the plane yes. is, doesn't go, oh, I know exactly why because I'm a genius. Okay. So because he, when he opens the because door. Because then he jumps out of the airplane. Yes. There we go. I'm really good at connecting things. <laughs> I don't know much about D.B. Cooper, <laughs> but I do know that jumping out of an airplane well, is a, a pretty, fairly a pretty big, big part. part of the story. Yeah, so and therefore, you don't want it going too fast, too no, high. No. Wow. And I, did not, the I honestly didn't connect those two things. Okay. Because keeping the landing gear down, I think, would have limited how fly, high the plane could fly. Yeah, and the air flaps would slow the plane down. Down and, and then, the speed. And then yeah. non-pressurizing the cabin would mean that he when ha- he jumps, he doesn't yeah. get vacuums sucked he wouldn't, out. He wouldn't die. Yeah. <laughs> His lungs wouldn't pop. Yeah. Right, so they take off again. Okay. And they start flying toward Mexico City. Mm-hmm. Okay, they start flying. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they take off, start flying toward Mexico City, and at approximately 8 p.m., a warning light flashes in the cockpit, indicating that the aft air stair apparatus had been activated. The steps that would lead you out of the aircraft okay. had been opened. And when the crew landed again, he, wasn't, he there. wasn't there. He wasn't in the airplane anymore. They didn't go back when it said that the they didn't go look? It said that they noticed a change of pressure in, in okay. the aircraft, but they never actually went back to look. Not okay. that I could find anyway. Probably so, because the plane, I don't know if they were just worried that if so the there pipe- was a big window that he could have jumped there. It wasn't like the pressure changed, they looked back, and he was gone. No. Okay. That, plus, they would have been sealed in the front of the airplane. Okay. So they were they were situated in the front flying the plane. Yeah, but this is like pre-9-11. They could just walk back. My dad was a pilot for a, an airline. I mean, yeah, I they, they, they could, they could have just the opened door the door and, and walked back, but it doesn't yeah. say that they ever did. Okay. So that's that's D.B. Cooper in a nutshell, basically. He, he shows up at an airport. How did they get the name? D.B. Cooper. Okay, so that's interesting. So he... Actually, when he bought the ticket, identified himself as Dan Cooper, mm. which is the name of a French comic detective, like a Dick Tracy, from what I can okay. find. So they that was another clue that people were. It's also know, just a fairly common name. Common name. Uh, very frivolously, were attaching to him. Yeah. Um, DB Cooper came about because he was one of the first. DB Cooper was a real person. Oh, okay. He was the first suspect in this case. And a journalist, again, was rushing to get a, a, a headline out yeah. and printed D.B. Cooper as the name of the person who hijacked the plane. Okay, and he was subsequently found to be... Not guilty. He wasn't even, like, in the area. Oh, okay. So it, it's a it's a misnomer. Okay, so the journalist was like, his name's Dan Cooper. Look, there's a person called Dan Cooper. We'll say that's who did it. So I think the FBI announced that D.B. Cooper was a suspect okay. before there was any sort of evidence pointing toward him not even being there. They were just going off of names at that point, trying to connect yeah. the, the easiest. I'm glad that that's changed. Yeah. 
Because that could have ruined, uh, probably did ruin yeah, his I don't life. Think it didn't do very good things. I didn't dig too deep into it. But or it made him really cool. Yeah, so there's a, it's, it's funny because people did try to eke off of the name in a, in a different way. Well, because it's a really cool crime because no, one, no one's hurt. No, no, no one's hurt. He didn't, yeah, he didn't harm the pilot or the passengers. No, he just let everyone go. That's why he's infamous in a... In like a Robin Hood sort of yeah, way. Yeah, like, um, although not because... Although mostly just selfish because the money was for him. Mm-hmm. It wasn't... What's the theories? On what? On D.B. Cooper? Yeah. I'm going to get into that into okay. in a second. Actually, that's what most of my research was. Okay, Was so... into some of the suspects. Okay, cool. I didn't really dig into the investigation too much because I think that's sort of beating a dead horse. Yeah, there wasn't much evidence. Um, no, and it wasn't uncovered sequentially. Like, uh, I'm sorry, it wasn't uncovered... All immediately, it was yeah. like spread out over several years. Okay. What I found interesting is I don't think they closed this case until 2006. Wait, they've closed it. Yeah, as like an unsolved. Oh, thing. okay. As in they've stopped working. Yeah, it's not. not like it hasn't solved it. It hasn't been solved. No. Okay. And then cool. some evidence came out in 2011, which I'll talk to you. All right, let's do it. A bit. So what I'm going to talk about is like the who is DB Cooper. So I thought I think that's more interesting anyway because mm-hmm. last episode was super wordy and researchy and kind of ugh. yeah. So I just thought I'd go into some of the people who they Sweet. investigated most. And Adam's notes, which are normally so gorgeous, have now been covered in coffee. Yeah, you, look at that. Look at all that void. Look at all that void uh-huh, there. Uh-huh. Now covered in coffee so we can know that this is going to make even more sense so than much sense. normal. So the question, the big question that everyone has been trying to solve, there, <laughs> there's, there are theories. Of, are you kidding me? It's who is D.B. Cooper? It's who is D.B. Cooper. Okay. So he... Firstly, he's very hard to identify. He, When he walked into the airport, and you can find the sketch of him, and we'll toss it in the show notes and onto our Instagram, you look at his picture, you you immediately think that's every guy from the 1970s. He was 6'1 or 6'2, 170, 175 pounds, brown hair, parted on the right, Caucasian, in his mid-40s, carrying a black suitcase. Black. Mm-hmm. So obviously, that's not a lot to go on in terms of physical description. And a lot of the people who were suspects look a lot like the sketch artist's rendition. Okay. Because a lot of people just looked like that, which <laughs> I think is what makes it this so much more difficult. But it also means that, like... How dare he not have a long handlebar mustache yeah, or and be a, partially bald on the back of his head, a five big, foot two. A big scar, <laughs> a tattoo on his face. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because you almost wonder, like, a lot of this required quite a bit of planning, a lot of forethought. He obviously wasn't super stupid, so you're almost wondering if he knew he was very nondescript and was just like, if I do a robbery, and even if I get away with nothing, but I at least escape and they don't catch me, they're going to have a hell of a time sussing me out. So guys, if you have a father, grandfather out there, who at one point had like an afro and uh, used to wear full face makeup in the 70s and then, Not turned, ar- Cooper. And then turned around one day and made himself look super nondescript <laughs> and likes to drink bourbon and soda, he was perhaps getting ready to become D.B. Cooper. Did he show up later with a lot of unmarked bills, beginning with <laughs> L? So that's that's an interesting thing. Part of the evidence was found in 1980 along the Columbia River. So when he jumped out, he jumped out in the woods over Washington. Oh, so pretty soon after they got yeah, in the air. it wasn't. But how do they know he jumped out in Washington if the doors were open and no one checked on him until they arrived in Mexico because, City? Because the, so the door opened, and he could have stood there waiting for the plane to go even farther. I think there was some... Someone suggested that he, because I don't even know where the plane landed. I didn't even get to the end of the plane's flight path, so I don't. Oh, okay. I don't know if 
he jumped out of the plane and then they went to check. And when they found out he wasn't there, they flew the plane back. Or if they flew all the way to Mexico City with their door open. Okay. Um, and especially at such a dangerous. Yeah. As you get farther south, you're going to get maybe close to mountains. It seems kind of not great. So he jumped out somewhere over Washington, over the, the Washington forest. Mm-hmm. So in, the, in 1980, an eight-year-old was digging in the banks of the Columbia River and found nearly Is six... Is that in Washington? Yes. Okay. And found nearly $6,000 sort of... So this, Sweet. At this point, it was four years later, mm-hmm. um, and the money was sort of deteriorating. So he found the money, and then they turned it into the FBI, or the FBI seized it from them. But they didn't seize all of the bills. And then four years later, this child or the child's family sold the bills for $37,000 at an auction. Nice. Which is kind of like fun. Um, Good for them. So that was a bit of the evidence. They also found his clip-on tie on the airplane. Okay. um, Which had three big pieces of DNA on it, which they would later use to cross-reference with their suspects. What's interesting about it is there's no fingerprint on it. And as we now know, and I don't know if it was as common knowledge back then, but the DNA, DNA, you know, evidence is not really super useful in terms of. Well, you have to have someone to match it to. You yeah. Can't just although it, can't, it doesn't just pull people out of a database. No, although now it's beginning to pull people out of a database, so maybe we'll actually get some some closure on DB yeah. Cooper. Yeah. So they had three big pieces of DNA on it, but then again, it's like he could have borrowed the tie, purchased the tie. There's no yeah. evidence to suggest that it was actually his. It could have okay. just been part of a costume. Is there any way it could have been one of the passengers? No, it was definitely. Okay. Well, they assume it's de- it was definitely his because it was on the plane after all the passengers okay. got off. And I think it matched okay. his drawing or the description from the um, flight attendant. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a bit about a passenger who was on the plane. He was a sophomore at Oregon State University. And he was one of the people who helped with the composite sketches. He's in, his, that information is was a critical in the investigation. Bill Mitchell didn't really interact with the investigation after that because he was worried that if D.B. Cooper was still alive, he would come after him. So I just thought it was interesting because I, for some reason, never would have assumed that someone on that flight would still be alive to talk about the actual... It's like like a year ago he was interviewed. Okay, when was the flight? 1971, but like... Okay, lots of people from 1971 right. are still alive, young Adam. No, not not like if they're all his age. If they're all like his, if they're all DB Cooper's age, and they're assumed to be like in their 40s, he's the most recent person, the youngest person on that flight okay. who was interviewed like a year ago. Yes, I understand that people who were born in 1971 <laughs> are still alive in 2020, but like it's just a he's like 60 or 70 now. He's like an old man. He was so he was worried that DB Cooper would come back to find him if he was still alive, but he was of the theory, and this theory is very popular, that D.B. Cooper died when he jumped out of the plane. Oh, okay. Because he was wearing a business suit. He was wearing, like, wingtip shoes. He wasn't really dressed for trekking through the Washington wilderness with a a suitcase full of money. And that theory is sort of backed by the fact that they found some of the money in Mm -hmm. just in the river. Seemingly discarded, not, like, he put it there intentionally with the idea of coming back to it later. Yeah. So Bill Mitchell, that was interesting, I thought, to, yeah. to like hear like a, because that was, honest. that article came out like at the end of 2019, so to have an account so late into I just the, think it's amazing that people still, it's such a cool story that people are still I know, yeah, writing. people people love this, this is like Bigfoot, yeah. D.B. Cooper is like Bigfoot the Yeti, Loch Ness Monster, mm-hmm. so we're going to go into a few of the suspects, okay. uh, not in any particular order, 
just in the way that I found them while I was doing my research. So, like I said, they were very heavy-handed on the Coopers. They really wanted to <laughs> find someone whose last name was Cooper because they thought for some reason that they this person would have given any part of their real identity. Was there? Did they check IDs at this point? Uh, before flights? Mm-hmm. No, he just identified himself as Dan Cooper. Okay. And I don't think in... I'm not sure. I might be incorrect, but I don't know if photo IDs existed in 1971. It could have just been like a driver's license. Yeah, just I was going to say it might not it. have been an issue through... Pre like pre nine eleven almost. Well, for into for, uh, into not international domestic. Oh, domestic flights. flights yeah, he probably just got on the mm-hmm. plane and just said, "Hey, my name's Dan Cooper. I'm an American. Can't you tell I'm an American?" Now yeah, fly maybe. me to Seattle. So, and this was interesting because Lindy Cooper wasn't a suspect until two thousand and eleven. Okay. When his niece came to the FBI and said, "I think that my uncle might have been DB." Because he drinks soda and coke, bourbon <laughs> no, and soda. For a lot more, a lot, like pretty damning reasons, okay. honestly. So he he was a logger when he was young, which meant that he. So this isn't that is important because DB Cooper had to be in good shape if he were to have survived walking through the wilderness. Okay. So they were looking for people with either military backgrounds or like hardworking. Yeah, yeah. Jobs. So that he was a sense. logger when he was young. I know it's, it is weird to, like, say that with no context. I'm going to start introducing myself like that, I think, actually. I was a logger when I was young. <laughs> so he was a logger when he was young, and he lived in Sisters, Oregon, which is very near to where they presumed D.B. Cooper okay. landed. Marla said that Marla Cooper, who was the niece, said that the two nights before Thanksgiving, she walked into a garage, and her two uncles were in there chit-chatting about something in very hushed tones. Mm-hmm. And they were they had just bought some very expensive radios. Okay. And then they left the day before. So it was the, the day before the day before Thanksgiving. Two days before Thanksgiving. <laughs> yes. And then they went out on the day before Thanksgiving to go hunt turkeys and then okay. didn't come back Thanksgiving morning. Okay. So very suspicious because D.B. Cooper boarded the plane the day before Thanksgiving. Okay. And then her uncle Lynn came back and he was covered in bruises and he was bleeding and he said that they had been in a car accident. Okay. And the other one never came back. He, I think he was fine. He came oh, back okay. and, and was fine. So Marla, like, freaked out um, and told her mother. And her mother, like, corroborates all of this because they mm-hmm. were just like, well, you were eight when all this happened. How could any of this be yeah. true? And her mother, Haley, was like, no. And we're all very suspicious of this because uh, every time we would bring it up, because that's what you would do in a family. You'd be like, are you D.B. Cooper? He would just, like, shut the conversation down. Oh, yeah, because, let's be honest, if your name was Cooper, you lived in the area. Oh, yeah. And you were right bloodied and battered on he, Thanksgiving he, Day. Everyone would just go and assume. He lived, like, 50 miles from, like, from where they found the money, I think. And it's more suspicious if he shuts it down than if he makes a joke. Yeah, exactly, it. exactly. Um, and Marla also said that she was eight, so this it's hard to say whether or not this is true or if it's just a false memory, but... She heard her uncle saying, uh, we were fine. All of our money troubles are over. We just robbed a plane. <laughs> Which, if she had heard it, uncle's probably D.V. Cooper. But again, she was eight. Yeah. It's hard to say. So they actually checked. So he was dead when she yeah. brought this evidence forward. But the FBI did a DNA test on his daughter to cross-reference with some DNA on the tie. And it was yeah. an inconclusive match. Which doesn't mean that it wasn't his DNA. Because yeah. her, her DNA wouldn't be a perfect match for his. So what they're trying to do now is they had a fingerprint that okay. they found at the crime scene. Um, but And so now they're trying to find a fingerprint of Lynn. 
was very difficult as he died, like, yeah. a few years ago. So they're trying to now... Find something that only he would have Yeah, touched. that they would have that can completely tie him to this case. I will say that inconclusive DNA, I mean, they're testing three le- fairly large chunks of DNA against his daughters. Yeah. It's not a big stretch of... No, no, no. It, in, inconclusive doesn't mean that it was a failing. It just means that, like, they're it, inconclusive. It's in the definition, yeah. right? I think that's really interesting, and it it's a pretty compelling case. Like, before I went into this, I didn't know anything about D.D. Cooper, and my first assumption was that he just died in the woods. Okay. Because, like, that's the easiest thing, really. It's not as interesting as he ran away to Arizona and lived his life, because that's yeah. a theory that some people hold. But, you know, it's, it, I mean, I would pro- I'd probably die if I jumped out of an airplane, with a parachute even. Anyway. Oh, what was interesting, too, this is sort of a, a backtrack, but... So he asked for four parachutes, yeah. two main and two reserve. Obviously, he only jumped with the main and the, the reserve, yeah. and then he cut the uh, the ropes of or the tethers of the other two, presumably. So, if a pilot came out to check, not that I would ever jump after somebody like that. No. I'd never be that kind of hero. But presumably, I wonder why he asked for four though. To, maybe he thought that they would give him a dud. Maybe if he only asked for one, and then he wouldn't be able to leave the plane safely. Maybe hard to say. Another. Um, popular suspect in the Cooper case was Richard Floyd, M- Floyd McCoy, which is where the real McCoy oh, really? thing comes from. Yeah. They, oh, cool. Um, there was a, what you'll find is that some of the investigators in this got so wrapped up in finding D.B. Cooper that they were convinced regardless of whether or not the information proved them emphatically wrong. If I've learned anything from my true crime addiction... That is not is an that unusual not su- is thing. Is that not surprising? That is not an unusual thing. People can get really locked onto this idea without any evidence. Yeah. There was a lot of evidence to suggest okay. that Richard Floyd was the was D.B. Cooper, though. To, firstly, four or five months after the D.B. Cooper hijacking, he did the exact same thing. He boarded an airplane, okay. short flight, took $500,000, and jumped out of the airplane. Okay. He was arrested hitchhiking, wearing a jumpsuit, and carrying a duffel bag. Unfortunately, (laughs) this isn't funny at all. I don't know why I'm laughing. He escaped to Virginia Beach and was killed in a shootout with FBI. And I don't think his DNA matched any of the DNA on any of the physical evidence that they found on the airplane. Okay. Firstly, it sounds like he was bad at this compared to D.B. Cooper. Well, he he got the money, but then he... Hitch, yeah, I mean, bad in the sense that he didn't really think that hitchhiking in a jumpsuit with a duffel bag would be super suspicious. And by jumpsuit, I mean what you would wear if you jumped out of an airplane. Like a flight suit. Like a flight suit. Not a, you know, like a Michael Jackson Did jumpsuit. Did he wear the f- jumpsuit when he got on the plane? I think it was under his clothes. Because that's why I was wondering whether D.B. Cooper left his tie up there. Was because uh, he had something underneath. Interesting. So it, maybe he left his tie, got like, changed into a flight jumpsuit, and then... Just the tie didn't make it out the, yeah. the the door. That's interesting. Maybe he threw all the clothes out the window and he jumped out wearing a jumpsuit but mm. left the... I didn't go into a lot of the theory. I mostly just went into the suspects, but that, that could be a theory that people okay. hold. So, yeah, Richard Floyd McCoy obviously had a very similar MO, and he served in Vietnam as a demolition expert and as a pilot. So okay. he was a very popular suspect. Another Vietnam veteran, Robert Rackstraw was a chopper pilot in Vietnam who was known for his gallant rescues. He would fly into very dangerous situations, often 
not under the orders of his superiors to save. Mm. So he's actually like an awarded, medaled Vietnam Hero. veteran. Yeah. However, he was dishonorably discharged for a prohibited parachute jump. Uh, he came back to the States, and his family members said that he was very angry and sort of jaded about okay. about everything. Uh, and before Vietnam, not a great guy, four-time felon, an escape artist as well. Uh, he was fleeing charges for shipping explosives to another Vietnam veteran and fled by flying to Iran, where he was found selling weapons to the Shah, the Shah of Iran. Before they enlisted him in the U.S. Army? No, this is afterward. Oh, okay. This is afterward. This is in 1978. This is like right before the the Cooper hijacking. Okay. He also faked his own death. He was wanted for the murder of his stepfather. And while flying over Monterey Bay, he called in a Mayday crash and then jumped out of the airplane and crashed the plane. So when you started off this thing about him and you were like, he was a war hero and he rescued all these people. He was a war hero, but he was also a bit of a. He also sounds kind of awful. He's a psychopath. Okay, cool. And I may have the I may have the timeline there mixed up, which is obviously my fault. Well, the, I would assume all that happened after war yeah. versus yeah, but it all does, of that. But I know I, they were desperate for people. But in I Vietnam did, war, I did but. write before Vietnam here that he was already convicted before they enlisted him. I know they were desperate for people to fight, but that does yeah. seem like. Oh uh, yeah, so he was he was acquitted for his the murder of his stepfather, and then he was real arrested after the May Day crash again for like fraudulent checks or something, and then he died in 2016. Another. So other than just being kind of a douche who jumps out of planes, was there any yeah. reason to think he was DB? No. It was honestly just that he had experience. It, it seems like it's difficult to find people who have experience jumping out of planes. It's not like a, like. I would have thought there'd be tons well, of you know, there's lots of There's lots of hobbyist, like, skydivers. I mean, yeah, but I, I you have to find a, a Vietnam veteran, like, living maybe living near Washington with experience of the Washington backcountry. Once you, like, tie it, like, yeah, there were a lot of Vietnam veterans, obviously, but I think a lot of them were also, like, when they there came. There was a lot of other stuff. Yeah, there's like a lot of stuff. Some of them only drank rum and. So. Yeah, yeah, they only had rum and Cokes, and they didn't drink <laughs> bourbon, so that obviously couldn't have been DB. Uh, another popular suspect was Kenneth Christensen, who actually worked for Northwest Orient Airlines. Okay. Uh, as a mechanic and a flight attendant, and as something called a purser, and that's basically a flight attendant. Okay, okay, okay. I wasn't sure what that was. Uh, it's um, a person's, like, the person that helps you board the plane and stuff okay, like that. Okay, okay. Not necessarily that they go on the plane. Right, they, like, okay, they, like, yeah, okay. They, like, stand in the, the tunnel yeah. and stuff. And, okay. Uh, on his deathbed, his his brother reported saying. I may have got that wrong. I'm sorry to all the purses out there. That Kenneth said, I have something I must tell you, but I can't. Which, like, sure, Okay. Maybe that's indicative of him being D.B. Cooper. Okay, the eight-year-old who heard her husband... Uh, who heard her, her husband? Ooh. Ooh, who heard her uncle talking about robbing a plane and arrived bloody right after the plane he D.B. Cooper supposedly jumped out of the plane. Yeah. And whose last name is Cooper. Very suspicious. Seems to be on way more of a winner than there is... someone slowly <laughs> dying on a deathbed says he's got a secret. There is more evidence than okay. that. Um, he was a military. Stop interrupting. He you was all. a military paratrooper, <laughs> okay. so he made a living jumping out of airplanes. He purportedly bought a house in cash, um, regardless of living on like a very modest military okay. budget or income. Sorry. Again, that's what his family thought. They were like, "How did he even?" And then when he died, they found like two hundred thousand dollars in his bank account, which when he died was a large sum of money. Mm-hmm. Turns out that evidence completely thrown out the window. Someone. 
because of the internet, they now people like normal people are now able to sort of research how people. I love that. Yeah, how people are like because you could check. Someone went and to see when he bought the house, how he bought it. Yeah, and he bought it on a seventeen-year mortgage. He didn't pay for it in cash. Okay. He bought it like a normal person. Yeah. Okay. It took him seventeen years to pay off his mortgage, and then all the money that he had in his bank account was from him selling like chunks of land. Poor dude, just worked hard, tried his best. Yeah. Everyone... And then his family like freaked out, and they were like, "This guy must be DB Cooper." Although, let's be let's be honest, most of the DB if we if we take the DB Cooper was none of the suspects except for perhaps the uncle. Right. That you guys have talked about. Was this guy a bad guy? He just needed some cash. He's just like a... Yeah, just He's like a folk a, hero. A, a guy. And next uh, next suspect was Jack Caulfelt. Um, this guy... This guy, I, when I was reading and doing the research, seems like he was trying to ride the D.B. Cooper name into some sort of fame. Okay. He was a con man, ex-convict, uh, a purported government informant. I'm not sure for who or for why. Mm-hmm. He reportedly chauffeured for Robert Todd Lincoln Beckwith, who was Abraham Lincoln's last undisputed descendant. That was like his claim to fame. He was, however, heavily discredited by someone writing an autobiography on the, or a biography about this person. Dude, how can that be something that anyone cares about that So much? he's he seems to just be grabbing famous people okay. and trying to like make a buck or something. Because okay. he was in prison and through his inmate, got in contact with a Hollywood movie producer... I don't know how that works, but I guess prison at this time worked a little bit differently and tried to sell his story mm-hmm. to uh, an like a Hollywood script writer or movie maker or whatever, uh, claiming that he landed near Mount Hood, which would make sense. However, he gave a lot of detail to this reporter, to the Hollywood executive, whatever, that was easily discredited by facts that weren't okay. made public. And so that's that's an obviously a very popular tactic is to not make information public, and that way you can tell easily when yeah. someone is lying. I think this is interesting because it's just like it's like someone just like my life is not great, so I'm just gonna try to ride notoriety. It's amazing how much false confession is a real problem in crime. I'm sure you know. Yeah, you probably have heard quite a few. Some of them are coerced, but a lot of them are just attention-seeking false confession. It's really bizarre. Isn't it? Yeah, it's like, why would you? I mean, like, I know some people have this, you know, thing in their brain that tells them that they're not really making enough of their lives or something, and so they just seek attention at every opportunity. There's a ton of reasons why false confessions are a real problem, but they are a real problem. Yeah, obviously. Uh, And yeah, that's basically, those are the the suspects that I found the most interesting. Like I said, this isn't a very comprehensive dive into D.B. Cooper. I just sort of thought that, like, like I said, it's sort of... I hope someone's put his DNA, sent his DNA into those, like, family databases. Oh, yeah, the 23andMe or, like, Ancestry. that's how they found the Golden State Killer. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't, I don't know... Because let's face it, it doesn't matter anymore. You're right, he's probably dead. Yes. And... If it was just this one crime, mm-hmm. no, be no one was harmed in the making of this right. And also, there's, robbery. and there's no, you know, DNA to su- like at any other crime scene to suggest that he was involved in anything else anyway. So, I mean, what's it like? What would it hurt really? Yeah, but it'd be good to know. I think it's just because I think it might be because so the evidence from the Golden State Killer. This is a, a little off topic, obvious or very off topic. They knew it was from the killer. 
Like it was like definitely 100% from the Oh killer. yeah, absolutely okay. because he was committing crimes long before DNA was a thing, so he okay. wasn't Oh, this was one that they solved like several decades later, right? Yeah, he was leaving his DNA. Okay. He was leaving his DNA in all kinds of people. Okay. I, I think the thing with the DB Cooper tie is like the fingerprint can't be matched to anything cuz it's not in any database and or any database that they had at the time and the physical evidence on the tie it's not clear if it's his. If it's if it could only be DB Cooper's DNA. No, but even if they traced it back to someone else, it'd be fairly easy to be like, okay, this this traces back to Joe Bloggs, and Joe Bloggs is like, I've literally never jumped out of a plane in my life. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. And, well, it, or it could trace back to Joe Bloggs, who owns a clip-on tie. Yeah. You know, showroom. Or it could trace and, back to Joe Bloggs, who happens to be a Vietnam War vet who yeah. jumped out of a hell of a lot of planes. Yeah. You never. And know. bought a house in cash. Yeah, or who didn't really and bought it on a mortgage like a normal person. So that's uh, that's like a cursory look at D.B. Cooper. You know in Prison Break, they're one of the characters, the Prison Break, the TV show, Yeah, I know. he just gave yeah. me a look, like the tangent I was going off on was insane. Well, no, I just remember that show because they cut the main character's toe off with like bolt cutters and it made me cringe and I stopped watching the show after that. The show's really good. I hear, I hear, but I was like nine or ten, I think, when that show aired. Good, it's worth watching. The One of the characters in that, is supposed to be D.B. Cooper. Oh, that's really cool. And they just, like, allude to it sort of, like, slyly. He never confirmed... Uh, no, he does confirm it. Oh, that's kind of meh. I believe he can. Conf- I believe at one point... Okay, it's been a long time since I've watched this show. But I believe at one point he gets involved in the prison break because he says, I have cash on the outside. Ah. I have cash hidden on the outside. Ah, yes. In Washington State, in the um, woods. And the, all the all the inmates around him think he's db cooper and he just never says yes or no That's but then one day he like just alludes to this cash that he has hidden on the outside yeah. but i'm also assuming many criminals have cash hidden on the outside yeah probably and yeah does not make them db was cooper. he really old yeah okay that's interesting it was cool Maybe it was I, cool might have to watch that show that's a, like a large vastly quickly growing list of media that i want to ingest <laughs> now because of this of this we show should start like a uh Another book, podcast? Uh, no, like a book report on the website. Oh, that's not a bad idea. Maybe that's mentioned that people should check out. Maybe we can. That's how we'll do our appendix episodes. Is we'll like and we'll like do a bit of media about some folklore. Yeah, we're trying to come up with like a little quick episode we can shoot during the week mm. and something we're interested in. And the the final the pin the final pin in the DB Cooper thing. There's a really horrible B movie that came out called DB Cooper versus Bigfoot. That sounds amazing. And it's got like, and this isn't why it's bad, but it's full of just like not very subtle homoerotic subtext. It's just like a bunch of dudes running around Wait, the between woods. Between D.B. Cooper and Bigfoot? No, or between- <laughs> so you don't ever actually see Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. It's just a bunch of like really muscly dudes running around in their pants, their pants being their underwear, uh, holding little toy guns, like running around this big house. Did it's terrible. It running around a house or the woods? Yes, both. But mostly a house because the movie... <laughs> it looked like the director couldn't have been bothered to shoot a scene outside. It's bad. <laughs> and you watched it? <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> okay. I'll be watching that later. <laughs> I'll swap you the great TV show that is Prison Break for this. For D.B. Hor- Cooper versus Bigfoot. Horrific sounding movie. That sounds like a good trade. All right. So are we ready to... Let's learn about some Joan of Arc. Yeah. Let's and arc it up. So I will say that actually this was Adam's choice because I was trying to figure out who to pick mm. and he was like, no, do Joan of Arc. I want to learn more. Yeah, so. yeah. Not that the rest of your list wasn't great or full of wonderful, inspiring women, but I think Joan of Arc is just an interesting 
Yeah, and of, probably a bit more mythological. Yeah, she definitely has an air of of like being almost like Arthur, like almost being like an like a knight of Arthur sort Which of Which is deal. so weird because honestly, having read about her, I it just it, I th- a lot of that stuff there's not must really have much come mystery. must must have come much much later. There's not really that much mystery. Okay, so here we go. I'm gonna start with Kelly Deveris's quote on Joan of Arc. No person of the Middle Ages, male or female, has been the subject to more study than Joan of Arc. She has been portrayed as a saint, heretic, religious zealot, seer, demented teenager, proto-feminist, aristocratic wannabe, savior of France, person who turned the tide of the Hundred Year War, and even Marxist liberator. Which... If you're going to be known for something, that's a pretty good list to... Those are a lot of words. It's a lot of words. A lot of pretty good words, except for maybe heretic or demented teenager. And after this, I probably would go with demented teenager. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and heretic, maybe. <laughs> okay. Just did a little bit of, like, background to who she was. Yep. Or, or what she... Where she was born into. Okay? okay. So, at this point, everybody thinks of any battles between France and England. They think of England as being the island that we are currently sat on and France being the part of the continent that butts up against it. Right. Only separated by the channel. Historically, for a very, very long time, England actually was in control of a fair proportion of France. Okay. Um, hence why I want bits called Brittany. Um, right. Calais, Calais, for the longest time, was considered British territory. And it's... I mean, a hundred-year war describes the fact that... It went on for a hundred years. It went on for a lot longer than that. But the point being is that for years and years and years, Britain and England were fighting very, very much. Britain and France. Yeah, what did I say? To Britain and England. Yeah, okay, then them too. <laughs> England and France were fighting. And, I mean, it became a seasonal thing. Mm-hmm. But they were just... We kind of discussed this briefly in History Through a House, our other podcast, and it will come up again there a lot which is this idea of seasonal campaigning. Mm-hmm. People got bored and they went and fought for the summer. Yeah. and When they couldn't work the farms. Yeah. This was basically that time period. It was also a time period where religious, massive religious wars were starting, where crusades were happening. Mm-hmm. Religion was a huge part of day-to-day life. And along with that came prophecies. And around the time of Joan of Arc, there were quite a lot of vague pro- prophecies coming out. Some attributed to Merlin, your guide of Hungary, and St. Bede, the Venerable. Oh, yeah. We talked about him yeah. in the Basilisk episode. So there's a few, a lot of these kind of fairly famous prophets, mm-hmm. I guess, were speaking of a maid who was supposed to come from the borders of Lorraine. And since this was the area that Joan came from, Without this prophecy, probably she wouldn't have quite achieved, but it seemed to be fulfilling the prophecy that okay. all these fairly well-known people at the time had made. So you're saying that her notoriety wouldn't be nearly as noted if she hadn't been from the region? Or if she hadn't been... I'm saying that it's important to remember that a lot of people around there were talking about the fact that there's going to be a virgin made from that area who saves France. And if you're a teenage girl living in France at that time in that area, and you're prone to some maybe disillusioned beliefs, 
you might latch onto this prophecy and decide that person is you. Gotcha. Oh, okay. I get what you're saying. Okay. Okay. Carry so I'm on. just kind of putting this in context that it was a fairly widely known prophecy. Okay. Also, a lot of the priests around that area at that time would have known about it. It would have been, and uh, this is. A Did bit... France need saving? Well, so England was riding pretty roughshod out of France at this point. They had Paris. They had a whole load of other different mm-hmm. territories. Orleans, which is where the big battle with Joan of Arc was fought. Um, and they had also recently had a queen who was considered... Um, England England did. No, France okay. had a queen who was considered pretty miserable. And actually, it's a bit later I wrote it, but a prophecy of Merlin's more than 800 years old was called to mind, which said that in a far future time, France would be lost by a woman and restored by a woman. Mm-hmm. France was now for the first time lost and by a woman, Isabel of Bavaria, her base queen. Doubtless this fair, pure young girl was commissioned from heaven to complete the prophecy. Okay. So France was really not looking like France anymore. I mm-hmm. guess that's what it boils down to. France at this point was not looking like France. Right. And this girl came along and she fulfilled a prophecy. Right. Okay. And so this, sorry to keep, to keep yeah. going off on this, but so the prophecy also originated in the area where she was from? Yes. Okay. Very much and very specifically. Uh, she was born in the area that this prophe- prophecy had said that this maid would come okay. from. Okay, so here's a little bit about her. I generally have taken most of this information from something called newamvent.org, which is a religious website. Um, and it very strongly is a Catholic website. Mm-hmm. So it is definitely pushing forward this idea that Joan was a saint and was not suffering from anything other than... Religious fervor? Yeah, religious... No, that she was a a conduit for God. Okay. Um, That's what I suffer from. Okay, here's a little quote from a childhood friend, which I thought was kind of cool, because honestly, you don't really hear first-hand information that often. Mm -hmm. Joan was a kind and humble and gentle girl. She went often and willingly to church and holy places, and she was often embarrassed at the way people said she went so piously to church. She kept busy, as other girls do, doing housework and sometimes spinning. I saw her. She minded the flocks like her father did. So she was born in Champagne in on January 6th, 1412. Hmm. So this isn't that long ago. I know it is a long time ago. Not in terms of some of the other stuff we talk about, though. No, in terms of written history, Mm -hmm. this isn't that long ago, and it's not that mysterious. Everyone pretty much at this point had a written history Mm -hmm. and was writing. She died at 19 years old um, in 1431. She was born to a small peasant farmer who was poor but not needy. She seems to have been the youngest of five. She never learnt to read or write, um, but was skilled in sewing and spinning. And it she spent her days in the pastures with the sheep and cattle. Um, everyone spoke to her as being a religious child, very pious, brave beyond her years, and tenderly loving the poor. Mm-hmm. She also, I will say, had a fiery temper, and it's worth reminding this because it's not mentioned in the New Advent 
version of how her life went mm-hmm. because it didn't Doesn't... necessarily play to the fact that she was made a saint. <laughs> but she didn't hesitate to chew out prestigious knights for swearing, behaving indecently, skipping mass, or dismissing her battle plans. She accused the noble patrons of being spineless in their dealings with the English. According to witnesses at her trial, she once tried to slap a Scottish shoulder, a soldier who had stolen meat. She also supposedly drove away mistresses and prostitutes who traveled with her army at hmm. sword point, hitting one or two with swords in the process. And personal attacks by the English who called her rude names and joked she should return home to her cows reportedly made her blood boil. Her short fuse is evidence in transcripts of her court appearances when a clergyman with a thick regional accent asked her what language she spoke, she retorted uh, the language what language the voices spoke. She retorted that they spoke French far better than he did. <laughs> so while much of what is reported by the religious presses paints this picture of this Heidi type girl who flounced around in very mousy sort of Yeah. Uh went to church a lot. Yeah. Reality seems to be that she was much more of a well-rounded teenager. Yes. Very religious, no doubt. All of her, all of the things that she did were in name of keeping people pure. Mm-hmm. If you behaved indecently, she was going to come after you. I do think that if if they kept that out of, you know, you know, out of their dissertation of her, was because it doesn't seem like that would be a negative thing, you know, to to. Yeah. Uh, what she was called? like a warrior. Queen. Yeah, she was like a warrior. I yeah. don't know why there, having a bit of a spine was a problem. No, it seems like because they did saint her. She is yeah. uh, like a, she is a, 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 saint. a Catholic yeah. saint. It seems like you wouldn't want, you'd want that because like Michael's a saint too, isn't he? One of, like Michael the Archangel, I think, is a uh. a pretty. It's like anger and violence is not necessarily like always a horrible negative thing. Violence not great in the Catholic Church. It seems like they a, have a way of retributionizing stuff. Yeah, it seems it seems odd that they would leave it out for her, but maybe it's because she's a woman. Yeah, maybe. Um, she was also known for dancing around La Laba des Dames, which is the fairy tree. Okay. As a child, I read, uh, I it was I went into this thing where it turns out that her grandmother conversed with fairies. It was something that was brought up at her trial. That so delusion is genetic. Yeah, we'll get there. But there was this idea that maybe she talked to fairies who were, who are considered demons. I think in a lot of mythology. Yeah. So, especially if I would think France at the time would. Yeah. Would so this them fairy to tree that she was supposed to have sung and danced around there was there was definitely this idea of paganism. Okay. That was coming through. There was definitely this idea of paganism that was coming through. And came up quite a lot at her trial. Was, gonna, was that one of like the quote unquote crimes like levied against her? It wasn't even so much, but it was definitely something that they used to undermine her religious fervor. Okay, so they um, tried to. Okay, but I read a lot of places that in these particular charges, her answers seemed very sincere, mm-hmm. and that she said that the tree in her religion was for. It was associated with the Virgin Mary. Okay. And they used to bring, like, make flower crowns and leave them at the tree for the Virgin Mary. Was her religion different than Catholicism? No, it was Catholicism. Okay, okay. But for her religion in that area, the tree was sacred as part of a Catholic. Okay. And they were just using it that 
they were just using that as a point against her in her trial. Yeah, it was called the fair. It was just it, it was just a weird thing that there's came up time and time again mm-hmm. this idea of the fairy tree. Okay. Okay. At the age of 13 and a half in the summer of 1425, Joan first became conscious of the manifestations whose supernatural character would be rash to question. By the way, giving you a, an idea of the source I was using, yeah. where her voices are a... To question why she was hearing voices would be rash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Afterwards, she chose to call them her voices or her counsel. At first, it was simply a voice as if someone had spoken quite close to her. But it seems also clear that a blaze of light accompanied it and that later on she clearly discerned in some way the appearance of those who spoke to her, recognizing them individually as St. Michael, St. Margaret, and St. Catherine. Joan was always reluctant to speak of her voices. She said nothing about them to her confessor and constantly refused at her trial to be persuaded to give descriptions of the apparent appearance of the saints or explain how she uh, recognized them. Nonetheless, she would repeatedly say, I saw them with these very eyes as well as I see you. The fact that she was hearing these voices that she that were from God and the prophecy that from her area means that by May 1428, she no longer doubted that she was to go help the king. Okay. And the voices became more insistent. And very urgent. Okay. So she presented herself to Robert Baudricourt. Baratheon? (laughs) Yes. Um, Baudricourt, who commanded Charles VII, who commanded for Charles VII in the neighboring town. He was a rude and dissolute soldier and treated her and her mission with scant respect, saying to the cousin who accompanied her, take her home to her father and give her a good whipping. She was like 14, right? 13. Yeah, okay. And this 13-year-old teenager shows up and says, hey, I'm supposed to help the king. <laughs> His voices tell me I mean, so. I, I think it's, I don't think it's very cool that he treated a stranger's child with, like, such disrespect, but, like, I get it. <laughs> like, leave. <laughs> yeah, he was busy running a... An, a campaign, yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, the military situation was getting worse, and everyone was getting a bit more desperate. Joan's voices became even more urgent, even threatening. It was in vain that she resisted, saying to them, I am a poor girl. I do not know how to ride or fight. The voices only reiterated, it is God who commands it. Wasn't she living on a farm? Yeah. She didn't know how to ride a horse? Was that not common for even if you lived on a farm to know how to ride a horse? I would have thought so. Yeah, me too. Uh, All right. Anyway, sorry, moving on. (laughs) Okay, so she went back to visit Manacourt again, Court again. This time he was skeptical, but she refused to leave. And eventually her persistence made an impression on her, on him. Okay, we're going to talk about some of these prophecies. Now, the voices, whatever. She does (laughs) seem to make a lot of, we'll get into the prophecies. We'll get into the voices, but the prophecies, there are three that I'm going to talk about that she made, which all came true. Okay. Which if the timeline lines up, either she was in my opinion, being coached by somebody who knew more than she did mm-hmm. or else she was genuinely a genius prophesizing. Okay. On February 17th, she announced a great defeat that had befallen the French arms outside of Orleans. This statement was officially confirmed a few days later and made her cause gain, gain ground. So obviously if someone comes along and says, hey, this battle happened and you don't know anything about it, and then mm-hmm. 
a writer comes in a few days later and tells you that it happened, suddenly you start listening to them a little bit more. Yeah. So Bowder Court finally said she could go and see the king, and she made her way there with a slender escort of three men-at-arms. This is the first incident of her, as far as we know, cross-dressing. So for those that don't know much about Joan of Arc, she spent the majority of her time dressed in male clothing Mm -hmm. and cut her hair very short and went around, uh, I mean, basically disguised as a boy. I don't know. There's a few different arguments to this. She always slept fully dressed, and those who who were intimate with her declared that there was something about her which repressed every unseemly rethought thought in her regard okay that's not flattering (laughs) (laughs) she was repulsive i put a sexual question mark maybe i mean it sounds like a mulan kind of situation yeah thank you disney so she went to see charles the seventh to test her charles had disguised himself but as soon as she entered the party at court she recognized him and saluted him now, I do know some stuff about when princes and kings and stuff disguise themselves in court. Yeah. They didn't do it very well. Okay. Um, because they because of, like, their vanity, they wouldn't, like, yeah. they wouldn't allow themselves yeah. to be, like, they wouldn't disguise themselves as, like, a servant. No. They traditionally still wore a crown. That's helpful. <laughs> I mean, I've seen, like, photos and pi- Photos. <laughs> I've seen photos from 1200. evidence. But, no, there are a lot of examples of, like, it was a big thing to disguise yourself in this period and do like masquerades and things like that. You still knew who the king was. Yeah. And even the way that people reacted who knew who the king was right, would yeah. have reacted. And this to wouldn't him. be the, the time for that sort of thing, would it? No. <laughs> Lots of people in the court thought she was crazy. But what one of the big things that comes up time and time again is that she apparently told Charles in confidence something about him that only he would know or okay. that he needed confirmation of. I have heard that maybe he had doubted his legitimacy and she said that God had told her that he was legitimate. Okay. I mean, that would help him out a lot, wouldn't it? Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. That would definitely seal the deal of him supporting her. Right. If she's going to go and say that God has spoken to me and said... Yeah, you're legit. You're legit. Anyway, before she could be employed to run an army... Uh, <laughs> as a 14 year old as a 14 year old girl you couldn't ride she was sent off to be examined by numerous people uh, to try and find out basically what was her character was she really speaking to God mm-hmm. I would also assume there was perhaps a virginity test in there because they love doing that they, do they um were they still under the impression that she was a, a boy no, no, no. They always knew she was a girl. She just dressed as a boy. Okay. Oh, okay. I thought it was... Okay. All right. No, no, no. They always knew she was a girl. Gotcha. Okay. It's just she... I misunderstood. She just uh, preferred to dress as a boy, or did the voices tell her to? Okay, so depending on what way you look at it, when she was dressing as a boy, mm-hmm. I think perhaps the more Catholic version of why she dressed as a boy, why they say she dressed as a boy, is because men were much less likely to sexually assault her if they looked at her and saw okay. a boy yep. versus a woman. And I'm sure a woman traveling with an army if she dressed in gorgeous clothes, it wasn't like she had a it wasn't like she had a rich family around her to keep her safe. She right. was a peasant girl mm-hmm. traveling in an army filled where most of the women were mistresses and prostitutes. Gotcha. 
identifying as a man would have definitely been her been safest, okay. safest cause and safest route. So after all of this stuff, they found nothing heret- heretical. 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 There we go. In her claims. Heretical. Yeah. To supernatural guidance. And although they didn't actually say that they thought she was talking to God, they said that there was nothing dangerous about her, so why not put her in charge just in case she was? <laughs> it's a bit faithless. Here's her next prophecy. Uh-huh. She made preparations for the campaign. The king offered her a sword, and she begged that the search might be made for an ancient sword, sword buried behind the altar in the chapel of St. Catherine de Fibros, and it was found in the very spot that her voices indicated. Okay. Ancient swords are very popular. They really are a big allegory at this point. Like, are they, is, outside of it being in a obviously religious place, was it meant to have been? Couldn't find. So I even looked okay. up the place that it was supposed to have been found, mm-hmm. the, the chapel or the church. Couldn't really find anything about that either. Interesting. So... As stories go, it was an anticlimactic detail, but a detail nonetheless. Was it? Is it implied anywhere that this place even existed? Uh, yeah, I think it. No, okay. it did exist. Okay, okay. It did exist. Um, I will say that almost nothing that I'm talking about outside of the supernatural stuff mm-hmm. is fake. Gotcha. So all the places are real. All the people she interacted with are real. All the battles that happened are real. Her role in them, if you take out the voices, the voices was real. Okay. Okay, so you have, like, okay, yeah. They also made for her, at the same time, a standard. So she got her own standard flag, um, which basically ennobled her. Okay. Um, bearing the words, Jesus, Maria, with a picture of God on it, kneeling angels, presenting a fleur de lis. To Jesus? Or they seem to God. Or were they just holding the flag? I think they were just holding it. Okay. Should have looked up the picture. It's fine. Whatever. I'm reading word for word here. But perhaps the most interesting fact connected with this early stage of her mission is a letter of one Sia de Rossiel, written from Lyon on the 22nd of April, 1429, which was delivered at Brussels and duly registered as the manuscript to this day attests before any of the events referred to received their fulfillment. So this is a written letter from a well-known person at the time who sent her prophecies to Brussels and they were registered, the letter was registered on the 22nd of April before the stuff she talked about happened. One more time? Some guy wrote down what she said. Sent it to the thing. Sent it to Brussels where the letter's date of arriving there and the letter itself was recorded. Okay. All of that happened long before what she prophesied happened. Okay, gotcha. So why Brussels? Was there like a big religious thing there? No idea. Okay. The maid. Oh, so by the way, she went by the maid, mm-hmm. not Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. The maid, he reports, said that she would save Orleans, would compel the English to raise the siege, and that she herself, in a battle before Orleans, would be wounded by a shaft but would not die of it, and that the king, in the course of the coming summer, would be crowned at Reims together with other things which the king kept secret. Okay, so that was her prophecy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what she told everyone her goal was. That's yeah. what she'd said. The voices had said by her being involved. This is going to happen at this This date. is going to happen. Okay. 
before starting to fight the English, she did the correct thing, which is give the English a heads up that she was going to very polite fight them. It's the thing. You had to then, or else it was a war crime. I'm not sure if you still have to now. Uh, you have to declare war. You have to declare war, but once you've declared it, can you? I don't know. Anyway, they started to siege on Orleans to fight Orleans. Joan of Arc was never actually in battle. Okay. She was always there, mm-hmm. but she was much more like a mascot mm-hmm. than she was a fighter. Mm-hmm. They had the they captured Orleans, but Joan was wounded in the breast by an arrow. Mm-hmm. She didn't care that she'd been wounded and she forced her troops to carry on and they started pushing further forward and they started basically moving in on the English territory and headed all the way up to Paris. The way to Reims was now practically open, but the maid had the greatest difficulty in persuading the commanders not to retire before Troyes, which was the first closed against them. So that was the next city they could fight. They captured the town and then still reluctantly following her to Reims, where on Sunday the 17th of July, 1429, Charles VII was solemnly crowned with the maid standing by with her standard for, as she explained, as she, as it had shared in the toil, it was just that it should share in the victory. So. Like three months later. Three months later, her prophecy that she had made came true, down to, basically down to the word. Mm-hmm. Also, I love the idea that she like legitimately just stood beside him and was like, I, I get to stand here. I get to stand here. I did this. Like I said, she's not quite the piously shy retiring type that no. people would like to paint her as. Yes. All right. Now I think this might be that piously thing coming through again. Since her mission was now fulfilled, some asserted that she wished to return home and live a simple life mm-hmm. and that she was retained against her will to maintain there and carry on fighting. The fact that she willingly and happily stood next to the king and was like, yeah, I did this, make, seems to me that she maybe was a bit more into the glory for it than anyone. Yeah, yeah, Um Not as flattering to, yeah. to suggest that she's a power-hungry. Well, and also fairly old. consistently sources point out that she was really annoyed by how apathetic the king and his advisors were to kick England out. Oh, really? She was oh, like... yeah, she, yeah, you mentioned that earlier. She's definitely the one that over and over again was like, come on, let's go fight them. Let's go fight England again. Um, And they made an abortive attempt in Paris at the end of August, and it was the first loss that she had been involved in, and it undoubtedly impa- impaired her prestige. And they called a truce, Charles called a truce with the Duke of Burgundy, who was fighting for the English side, and she sadly laid down her arms upon the altar of St. Dennis. So she'd been pushing, they lost, and she kind of quit. She did remain at court. They said here it must have been a miserable experience for her. That was me rolling my eyes, sorry. Doesn't play well on. (laughs) Um, And it may have been with the idea of consoling her that on 29th of December, 1429, Charles VII ennobled the maid and all her family, who henceforth from lilies on their coat of arms were known as the name Delis. So she actually became Joan Delis then. 
That's very French. Yes, very French. And she was also now no longer just a peasant girl. She was actually a noble. Okay. All right. She had another prophecy. Here she goes again. She said that they had to get fighting because she would be taken prisoner before Midsummer's Day. Um, that She made that prophecy in April, and they started fighting again. And a lot of prophecies happening in April for this girl. Yeah, I, it, it was right before campaigning season. Ah, right, you're right, of course. <laughs> it of course. fit in really well with when they fought. Yeah, she. it would be boring had she made it in December and they had to wait four months. <laughs> I'm not going to go into the details of this battle, but she was pulled down from her horse and became the prisoner of a follower of John of Luxembourg. Guillaume de Flavie has been accused of deliberate treachery and actually left her behind, but there seems no adequate reason to suppose this. Okay. Is that like her cousin? I De Lee? No, De, F- De Flavie. Oh, okay. Sorry. I thought I thought you said De Lee. No. While there seems to be no adequate reason for him to support this, just saying she's a 14-year-old girl with delusional voices who thinks she's a commander she's of an army. I, I personally might try and lose her too. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Joan... Tried to escape and failed, but actually what it meant was that from that point onwards, they had her in a tower with female attendants and stuff like that, but after she tried to escape, they got a little bit more suspicious, so they kept her in chains, and she had only male attendants, and she was held down a lot. That's an important detail. (laughs) it's, It's written here. It's written here in greater detail, like, it says here that she was allowed no spiritual privileges and she was kept in an iron cage changed by her neck, hands, and feet. Mm-hmm. Okay. Basically, Charles didn't try and rescue her. They also didn't try and trade for her. They had prisoners, apparently, that would have been valuable mm-hmm. as trading and they didn't bother to trade for her either. She was sold by John of Luxembourg to the English which would have amounted to several hundred thousand dollars in modern money. And the English were pretty much now in control and owned the mascot of all their defeats. Yeah, And also on top of that, they'd also heard that she heard voices and they were pretty, according to this, pretty scared of her and would like, to kill her, have her put to death. They could not put her to death for just having beaten them, so they would have to get her sentenced as a witch and a heretic. Okay. Okay. So this is now where we go with trials. Mm -hmm. So the Brits have her. The um, French seem to seem... They don't really care. Whatever about having her back. They're like done. They're done with all of her prophecy nonsense. Yeah. Um, So they put her on trial for heresy. Primarily is what they're putting on her trial for. The vicar of the Inquisition at first, upon some scruple of jurisdiction, refused to attend. But this difficulty was overcome. Throughout the trial, the assessors consisted almost entirely of Frenchmen. This is important. And for the most part, theologians and doctors of the University of Paris. Okay. Yeah, that would be helpful. So it was really at this point a council of her peers. Mm -hmm. She was not allowed an advocate, and although in- accused in an ecclesiastical church, 
she was confined in a secular prison where she wasn't allowed to pray and wasn't allowed to go to church. So it was a really confused... She was captured by the English and tried by the English, but most of the people trying her were French. How did that come about? Like, how would you even... Because the French and the English, while they fought all the time, were still... Uh, I mean, they at this point, the British had Paris, but it was still a French town. Okay. I I was trying to figure it out. I honestly don't know much about the Hundred Year War. I'm sure I'll learn more about it as after she was captured, go. right? Mm-hmm. And she was sold to the English. Yeah. Was she at this time in England? No, she was kept she... in France because okay. France was Paris was English. Okay. But but still French. Yeah. Okay. She they asked her a lot of questions. She refused to answer most of them, although she was apparently very polite and pious about it. Her attitude. Whatever. Based on what uh-huh. you said about her. Her attitude was always fearless. And on March the 1st, Joan boldly announced that within seven years, space, seven years space, the English would have to forfeit a bigger prize in Orleans. As a point of fact, Paris was lost to Henry the sixth on November 12th, 1437, six years and eight months afterwards. Okay. So again, one of those prophecies coming true almost to yeah. the number mm-hmm. beforehand. Which Henry lost Paris? Henry the Sixth. Okay. So they finished the official trial on March the seventeenth. What happened was is they decided at this point that they drew up seventy propositions of what her crimes were. Oh Lord. Uh, and then they decided that that was too many and a bit convoluted and hard <laughs> to understand. So they drew up twelve that were less extravagantly worded. 22 judges were asked to vote on these 12 charges. And they decided that her visions and her voices were false and diabolical. Okay. She refused to retract. So what they asked her to do was retract the statements that she'd made Mm -hmm. or else they'd hand her over to the secular arm. This is all in ecclesiastical church. Mm Mm-hmm. So they said, retract what you're saying or else we'll hand you over to the secular arm. The secular arm being, I think, much more British mm-hmm. and basically signing her death warrant. Yeah. Okay, there's a long paragraph here about how many times they asked her to recant and she said no. Over and over and over again. Um, I Like 10 times. Finally, her courage for once failed her and she consented to sign some sort of retraction but what the precise terms of that retraction were would never be known. I actually thought this was really interesting, and bearing in mind that I am reading from a slightly biased article and I read, I, I understand that, it is well known that she didn't know how to read and write. Mm-hmm. She was illiterate. Yeah. So the official record of the process of a form of retraction, which is inserted, the official retraction that she was said to have signed is very humiliating. It's a very long document, which would have taken at least half an hour to read out loud. What was read out loud to Joan and was signed with her was must have been something quite different for five witnesses at the trial, including Jean Massou, who the, was the official who read it aloud, declared that what was read was only a matter of a few lines. So she did sign it. She signed, we don't know. Um, She declared she only retracted it because it was God's will for her to retract it. Mm -hmm. 
And she just crossed, put a cross. Yeah. She obviously couldn't read or write. So she just signed what anyone told her to. Um, at this point, she's, what, 16, 17? Yeah. Um, so she wasn't... That that was enough. She was put back in prison. She By, by signing this document, mm-hmm. she had basically confessed... Yeah. Pled guilty, and because of that, would not be put to death. Okay, okay? if you think about a it, plea, in current like a plea bargain, plea bargain in current terms. Okay, everyone was pissed, particularly the English. Okay, because she wasn't going to get put to death. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now, part of the thing that was in this long thing that she signed declared that her cross-dressing was an affront to God and nature. Mm-hmm. It didn't take a long before she was dressing in boys' clothes again, and consequently, that was enough for her plea agreement to be found void. Okay. She was put back on trial and found guilty. Of the same, of what this time? Well, basically, all the stuff that she was found guilty of beforehand, mm-hmm. she basically signed a thing saying, I'll never do any of it again. I'm really sorry. Yeah. The moment she started wearing male clothes again, okay. that was enough for the whole... The whole kit and caboodle. ...to be void. Gotcha. And she was now consequently found guilty that of sucks. those crimes. There are a few. It it was really clear that the Brits wanted her dead. Yeah. Um. Or the English wanted. Of course her dead. they did. Uh. So there are a few. Hesitate to use the word conspiracy theories because they're possibly true. True. <laughs> that they actually only gave her men's clothes to wear. Oh yeah. They took away her dresses. They deliberately made the prison men hit on her until she was felt so uncomfortable that she requested men's clothes. Yeah. There was a lot of ways. It was the easiest thing to get her to. Yeah. So I'm sure all the other stuff was probably, yeah, it would have been like. Don't, don't say, don't. Don't say that you hear voices. Easy don't have enough. visions. Yeah. You, like you can't. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So on the 29th of May. A court of 37 judges decided unanimous, unanimously mm-hmm. that she must be treated as a relapsed heretic. Okay. And this sentence was actually carried out the next day. So within 24 hours. We don't know what her last words were really because a few different people have said a different stuff. Um, some people say that she actually said uh, on her last day that God had deceived her. Okay. And but the recorder at the trial said she declared again that her voices came from God and they had not deceived her. Obviously, anybody who knows anything about Joan of Arc knows she was burnt at the stake. Yeah. Um, after her death, her ashes were rub- thrown into the river sea. All right. Twenty four years later, okay. they opened a appeal basically into her conviction. That's helpful. Right. By this point. This part in Paris was owned by uh, France, mm-hmm. who to her, she was a, to them, she was a hero. Yeah. So they did a whole load of inquiries. Witnesses reversed their testimony because they were no longer being, whichever way you look at it, they were paid being off paid or... off by the English or paid off now by the French, yeah. whichever way you needed it to go. And the illegality of the proceedings was made clear. And they obviously said, we can't do anything much about it now because she's already dead. But 
many people said the discern there was something discerningly heavenly characteristic of the maid. In Shakespeare's day, England, she was still regarded as a witch in League with the Fiends of Hell. But by the beginning of the 19th century, sympathy for her in England was general. 400 years later. Yeah. Um, and among her Catholic fellow countrymen, she has been regarded even in her lifetime as divinely inspired. Okay. The, in, 19, in 1869... They officially determined that what she would, what she did was met the definition for miracles, um, and it was confirmed by Pius the Tenth. And in nineteen twenty, she was canonized as Saint Joan by Pope Benedict the Fifteenth. So twenty four years after they burned her to death. They yeah. said she actually wasn't guilty of any of this. Yeah. And then it took another 400 years to them to make her a saint. Yeah. In between that time, I know 400 years, and I'm sure that, like, anything that you found about this was probably scant, but, like, and the attitude on her between that time was, like, relatively negative in England and positive in France. What, like, did she have any other impact after her death in between her the reversal of her sentence and her being canonized. So the witch hysteria still hadn't happened. So the witch hysteria happened in the 16th and 17th hundreds okay. particularly. Yeah. So knowing nothing about her specifically in this, when they talk about Shakespeare being very anti-Joan of Arc, mm-hmm. it was partly to do with the fact that at that point they were not believing in miracles so much as... I'm sorry, my cat's walking across my skylight, and it's quite weird. Um, it wasn't so much that they believed in miracles, it's they also believed in witches, and okay. what she was doing seemed witchy. witchy. <laughs> and well, the fact that she dressed as a man obviously made her a horrific human being. So at the so like in the 1600s when the witch trials were going on, was she sort of, did they pin a lot of their... No one was very flattering about her. No one was very flattering about her in the 1600s, 1700s. Okay. yeah. Um, and I, England also at that point was going through a, and France, and no, France pretty much remained Catholic, but England was at one minute Catholic, one minute Protestant. Right. So England's always had a lot of mixed feelings towards people like that. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't, I, I, I'm not surprised. I would even think, I mean, Poor Joan of Arc. There was probably only a very small window of opportunity in the UK mm-hmm. between her being a crazy witch and yeah. her being a crazy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So. Was she like a martyr in France? Then? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was like, she helped bring France back to France. Okay. So let's talk about some modern day theories of Joan. Yep. Two Italian neurologists, Giuseppe Dorsi and Paolo Tenupa, sorry guys, I'm sure what you write is wonderful, I just don't know how to say your name, in a letter to the journal Epilepsy and Behavior, say that Joan may have had a condition called idiopathic partial epilepsy with auditory features. Auditory and visual hallucinations are a symptom of this type of epilepsy. Joan, uh, Joan is reported to have said that the sound of bells sometimes trigger the voices, and hearing sounds can be a trigger for these types of epilepsies. Mm-hmm. It is 
hereditary. Um, it's a genetic anomaly. Um, and that kind of, I think, could come back to her grandmother also seeing fairies. But other researchers have said that her daily... Oh, so at one of her trials, she said she heard voices every few days or once a week or something. And then another trial, she said she heard them almost every day. Mm-hmm. Um, hearing them every day would not fit in with this diagnosis, but hearing them sporadically would. Yeah. Um, other people have said that it could have been schizophrenic. She could have been schizophrenic. I think the reason why that is not such a popular idea is because she didn't appear crazy. So, although if someone's hearing voices and that's not an issue... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then... But she didn't appear crazy. Okay. She didn't have any other, like, quote-unquote symptoms. Other no, than like... And she got through trial... By in herself, a, yeah. In a very competent manner. Okay. She got through trial in a very competent manner. After nearly 600 years, the doctors say it's impossible to make a firm diagnosis, but they hold out hope of finding her letters which history says she sealed with a fingerprint and a hair. If they obtain one of her hairs, they could actually do a genetic test to see whether she had this form of epilepsy. Oh. Where, are, where would her letters be? I don't know. Honestly, I thought where Joan of Arc's letters be, well, might be a cool yeah. thing to go down, but I didn't. Okay. After her execution, several young women came forward claiming to be her. And, in fact, her brothers even came forward and said that one of the girls was their sister who'd escaped and hadn't been burned at the stake. Was this a thing for the, like, a way to keep the French morale up? I think it was a way to get some money. Or or was it a, a D.B. Cooper situation? I think it was, a, they, they they ran around France getting gifts. Although I guess it would be a Meeting Joan- with the Prince Elizabeth of Luxembourg and a few <laughs> other people. Be a Joan of um, Arc situation, yeah. I guess, because that obviously happened. She then met with Charles VII of France, who asked her what was the secret that she told him that she had, and he had no idea, so she had to... Stop. Stop. He didn't just say, you don't look anything like the maiden. The maid, please leave. I don't know. But she married a knight and retired to his castle and had two children. Oh, that's nice. Okay, so let's talk about... Sometimes lying pays off, guys. (laughs) Just, I just thought I'd put that in there. Let's talk about cross-dressing real quick. All right. So a holy transvestite is actually a thing. In in what? In In Catholicism. Okay. A holy transvestite is a common medieval archetype and one of the grounds used to defend Joan's attire it there are there is a classic story of fearing for her virginity on a wedding night women would cut off their hair don male attire leave their husband join a monastery and pass themselves off as monks okay this was a thing because they didn't want to get married uh, lose their virginity yeah yeah one of them very specifically was saint pelagia and the devil frame, tested her by framing her for the pregnancy of one of the nuns. And she was driven into exile. She clung to her identity until her deathbed, where she confessed that she wasn't a man and was absolved of her guilt. With regard to holy transvestites, Gaunt argues sexuality is central to the construction of the sanctity of the Middle Ages. So this was really big into gender identification yeah. in the Middle Ages. And that holy men and women were not removed from sexuality, but continued to define themselves through reference to sexuality that had been shaped and redirected. So, okay, basically, they just blamed the devil, as you do, for their thoughts. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, they might 
say that one of the monks in the monastery was a woman dressed as a monk so that they could have sexualized thoughts about her and not feel bad about it. It's really okay. As far as I could. So there was this idea of women dressing as men, particularly in religious settings. However, I like this idea. She occupied neither a male or female gender. This is a woman named Warner. Through her transvestitism, she abrogated the destiny of womankind. She could thereby, therefore transcend her sex. Mm-hmm. At the same time, by never pretending to be other than woman and a maid, she was usurping a man's function by shaking off the trammels of his sex altogether to occupy a different third order, neither male nor female. Warner characterized, categorized Joan as androgyny. Gotcha. And I think that that is really interesting, this idea that by claiming womanhood and staying a virgin, she actually transcended men. Yeah. Like, that was more important than men. It was something very similar that Queen Elizabeth did. Okay. Um, many years later, mm-hmm. where she was a woman, yeah, but she never took a husband, and she felt that by being a single woman, putting herself as being married to God and above, mm-hmm. that she was therefore ranked higher than the men around her. Interesting. Did she ever reference Joan of Arc? I don't know. I don't know why she would have, but... I don't know. Probably. I mean, I wouldn't have... No. I would have thought she would have done if she was now in this day and age. Right. But in that day and age was big into witches, and was Shakespeare say, was writing at the same time when, as Elizabeth, so probably... I was when was she queen then? Uh, 1600s, okay, so no. She no. very much thought Joan of Arc was a witch. Yeah. Didn't want to be associated. That's unfortunate. All right, so that was the life of Joan of Arc. Life and death of Joan of Arc. That's kind of depressing. But also very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Poor teenage, mixed up teenage girl. Got burned alive. Who got burned alive. I kind of skipped over that bit in case you didn't notice. Yeah, I can understand. Just just we went with she... She, she died. Died. In a fire. Um, I mean, it's sad. It is sad from start to finish because... Take religion out of it just for a second. And mm-hmm. I did deliberately do a more religious version of this where it was talking very much more about her because uh, I knew that my natural skepticism probably wouldn't do the time period justice. Right. This is a 13-year-old girl who starts to get probably quite ill mm-hmm. who is given an outlet for why she's getting ill, which is this prophecy and probably a whole load of people around her who gave her an excuse as opposed, or uh, encouraged it versus... Not that there would have ever been any cure, cure or treatment for it. No, but who Not took it, advantage of it. Yeah. I think, for me, it seems like this is a situation of a vulnerable girl who got very much taken yeah, advantage like of. like despite being in, in very in control of whatever she was handed, right? Mm-hmm. She was never really in control of her own life. No. In a way. No, and... and Although I do think she wasn't spineless as some of these things certainly portray her. I do think she had a load of backbone. Um, I also think that she, I mean, I think to mean 13 or 14 and believing, I don't know. I mean, we talked about the Slender Man girls that believe in Slender Man. It's easy to convince. It's easier to be, it's easier to be wrapped up in an ideology. Yeah. Um, And I think it's horrifically sad that she signed a document that she probably had no idea what she was signing that saved her life, only to months later do something that made that document void and ended up with her death. 
it's hard to know whether she knew what she'd signed, whether she knew that by... Uh, I mean, her putting on the men's male clothes again was essentially the same as her committing suicide at that point. Mm-hmm. Other than she probably ever would have known that that would have been... And it, was it a question that she knew that that was what it was? Was it a stand? Was she was she becoming a martyr deliberately? Mm-hmm. Because it would help inspire France to win? Hard to say. Hard to say. But either way, terribly sad. Yeah. And that was Joan of Arc. Thanks, Joan. Yeah. All right. So that was us. We need to come up with what we're doing next time. We haven't talked about it. Not an idea. Not a clue. Okay. What about a building? All right. Sweet. Let's do a legendary building. Okay. Yeah. Let's do a legendary building. And that sounds great. And we will get it to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye.